0: Hello, and thank you for joining me on the Frontier Markets podcast. I'm your host Krishan Kupchand, and my guest today is Elliot Pence. Three quick facts about Elliot: Elliot's the founder of a fund called Tofino Capital that invests in frontier markets. Two. Elliot was previously the head of international at Andrew Industries, a company I deeply admire that is building the next generation of defense technologies in America. And three, he spent a lot of time uh, engaging in market expansion and international market exposures um, elsewhere as well. So Elliot, I think I've kind of shared, I guess a bit of a summary of, of some of the high level kind of, you know, uh, things you've worked on. I'd love to hear the story from yourself in terms of the timeline the lessons you learned from these experiences and how it leads to you engaging in the thesis that you are with Tofino Capital today.
1: Sure, well, great to great to chat, Krish. Um, yeah, so I, I grew up in Canada to a South African mother and American father uh, in a place called Victoria, BC, which is kind of a, a beautiful British outpost uh, on the, the West Coast on Vancouver Island. Um, did my undergrad there Uh, And then started working uh, on the continent um, in Africa in 2004 as part of a Canadian government sponsored program with a group called the African Virtual University. So this was sort of the precursor to Coursera, um, a MOOC, I think we call it, a massive open online course. Um, So that was really my first exposure to what kind of was going on in frontier markets and how technology could play uh, a role there. I then uh, did my uh, graduate work uh, here in the States at Yale uh, and then moved down to D.C., uh, worked for a consulting firm that was helping U.S. multinationals invest uh, on the continent called the Whitaker Group, was there for a few years and then worked for another uh, consulting firm called McLarty Associates, uh, started their Africa practice, um, worked with companies like Walmart and Cargill and uh, Archer Daniel Midland. Google, so got kind of wide exposure to multinational interest in in emerging in frontier markets, left that 2018 uh, to go to Anderil, which was a client of McClarty's, was there for four years, started their um, international uh, focus, uh, and then um, last year uh, left Anderil and joined a company called Cambium and uh Uh, started fundraising for Tofino Capital. And we stood that up with my um, co-founder sort of mid to to late last year. Um, So that's me.
0: Fantastic. Would you be able to walk us through the way in which market expansion happens for these multinational firms and how they think about it?
1: Yeah. um, Sometimes it happens. Well, I guess the top line answer is it happens a bunch of different ways. And sometimes the firm is like fundamentally focused on uh, growth markets like China and India Uh, in other times they're not. And um, we were primarily working with those that didn't really have um, a sense of what was happening internationally. Um, So in many ways it was sort of their first look at different regulatory environments that were outside of call it North America and and Europe. And so I think, you know, they would do so, uh, cautiously, um, uh, you know, folks that were moving into, to Africa would either do it, um, organically or in, or inorganically sort of acquiring companies, testing the waters for a few years, transferring some staff, um, so that they could get some embedded knowledge about operating environment, uh, and then allocating more capital off balance sheet to expand once they've kind of got a thesis about where they're going. Uh, at other times it was a board member that you know grew up in a country international place and said we really ought to be kind of in this market that's growing at seven eight percent why aren't we there um, in other times it was sort of an enterprising regional lead that uh, had a friend in South Africa or Turkey or what have you um, so I'm not sure if there's a sort of specific way that multinationals expand um, um, but Towards the end of the '90s, there was a real push from at least U.S. multinationals expanding into places like Latin America and, uh, and South Asia, um, uh, and that's really where McClarty uh, got its start. Mac McClarty was President Clinton's first chief of staff. He then went to become his sort of special ambassador to Latin America, and so had a ton of connectivity on the continent. Um, They linked up with Henry Kissinger. It was Kissinger McClarty for about a decade. Um, So obviously, Henry Kissinger brings sort of whole another weight in in global politics and strategy. Um, So I joined 2013 to to help build out the Africa practice.
0: And in that time, what have you learned about the main levers for success in effective market expansion uh, into these frontier emerging markets?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question, and uh, this is a bad answer, but. I think that the main thing that I've learned is you've got to be humble. Um, You know, these are markets that don't operate in the same way that the West uh, does. It's in many ways sort of 30, 40 years behind. So the regulatory environment looks different. The context looks different. The capacities are different. The technologies um, may not have been as diffuse in these markets. Um, It's not to say that they're sort of... uh, not interesting commercially they certainly are it's just to say that um if you come into it with a specific model or mindset of how things are going to happen you're probably going to fail so you really have to be open to uh, thinking about you know reorganizing your your business in these markets and being humble about um uh, the business model that you've built in the west and its applicability to uh to the market that you're expanding into
0: okay final question on market expansion would you be able to share a case study or story of uh one a successful market expansion and two perhaps a failed one that kind of illustrates you know a lack of humility or certain struggles that may be embedded with this
1: yeah well almost all successful market expansions are preceded by failed market expansions oh um you know i it's hard to 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 pick out one, Um, but, you know, we, we, we worked with uh, Walmart uh, in Africa, they acquired a company called Massmart. I wouldn't call that a failure because it certainly wasn't, but it didn't uh, kind of achieve the expectations that I think Walmart had or, or had assumed the continent was going to give them. Um, You know, they tried to expand up into Nigeria and did, and um, kind of had some. Back and forth with regulators, and misinterpreted some of the commercial potential. Um, uh, but they have since kind of recalibrated and are kind of leveraging their know-how in a much better way. Um, you know, working with the knowledge that they you know they acquired Flipkart in India. So presumably there's some knowledge of operating knowledge that they've kind of embedded into their African operations. Um, working with local operators across the continent, not just Massmart, which is kind of primarily a satic based entity, um, and dedicating staff, um, that had real power and kind of real influence, um, back home in Arkansas. Um, and so, you know, I'm not sure I'd call it a failure. I I think it was sort of not what they had wanted. Um, but they've certainly kind of come back and, um, renewed their interest on the continent, uh, in a different way. Um, I mean, how to do it well. Um, again, like it's a hard question because most companies that have done it well have failed first learned and then integrated lessons from that. Um, I don't know if there's been kind of a, a one and done, um, play for at least Africa um, that, that I know of.
0: I appreciate that. Um, it reminds me very much of, uh, in one of Jeff Bezos's shareholder letters, he talks about expectations management. In particular, yeah. he talks about uh, how long does the average person think it takes to learn how to do a headstand. And you think maybe two weeks, maybe six weeks. No, it's like six months if you're at the median. Um, and most people are at the average or median. And uh, most people quit. At the two-month period because they're like well you know screw this it's just a headstand why is this taking so long uh right. maybe there's something wrong with me uh but i but i appreciate that you shared that oh no it's, it's it's even for you know exceptionally operationally competent firms like walmart it takes uh multiple iterations to go there and if one has the calibration you use that word or patience um you can eventually unlock these new paths um yeah, which i think is fantastic yeah absolutely so moving on um could you share the thesis behind Tofino Capital?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, my, my co-founder and I, Aubrey Ruby, had been watching uh, and really operating on, in frontier markets for two decades. And we saw kind of a number of trends, but two in particular that were exciting. And um, we felt like we're kind of almost laws of physics. Um, so demographic growth uh, on the continent. Um, And then uh, digital infrastructure. Um, You'd see if you looked at kind of Latin America or South Asia, you would see two trends where startups started to take off the smartphone penetration rate and then the cost of data. Um, Once those things were diffuse enough within the population, you know, you saw like Nubank or Grab or GoTo or whatever. Um, pick up around 2011 2012, um, and we kind of felt like something similar was happening uh, in Africa and other frontier markets, where data was starting to come down. Africa still got higher data rates than most of the world, uh, and certainly smartphone penetration rates. But so those two things were were major kind of influences. The other thing um, that we saw was just the complete lack of risk financing so venture capital um, you know India Brazil China all had um, per capita venture capital rates of sort of 20 30 40 50 dollars uh, per person and you know in the markets that we were looking at like Egypt Nigeria or, or you know uh, Bangladesh it was sort of less than two or three dollars. Um, and so we just kind of felt like the entry price here was, um, inevitably going to be much more attractive than, uh, than other saturated markets. And then there's, there was other things, you know, there's stagnant growth in, uh, internet businesses in the West. There's some interesting things happening in health and energy and manufacturing that was sort of decentralizing, um, operations like off-grid energy, solar power. Um, you know, during COVID there was a conversation about what does mrna mean for places that have pretty dramatic health inflict uh, health challenges obviously africa s- sits there and then manufacturing you've got interesting things happening in kind of biomanufacturing additive manufacturing kind of more localized context rich sorts of industrial development so the, those are the sort of main themes that we were looking at um
0: fantastic in terms of uh, over that kind of year 20 year plus experience of looking at these markets um, as you've developed your your taste and your thesis when it comes to the types of companies that are illustrative of either A, what Tofino finds interesting or B, what you kind of Percy find interesting within these markets. Would you be able to share one or two of those companies and maybe the stories behind them?
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I think the ha- headline point here is that most of the companies we're investing in, we're investing in from a kind of people specific or people centric lens and so we're not we're looking at the sectors obviously I mean that that matters but um, uh, I would say a lot of what drives our investment is because of people and I think this is where a lot of venture funds go wrong is that they think that the way to invest in new markets is the way they invest in you know the markets that they've been investing in which is sectors or trends or etc and then you kind of just kind of find the team. Um, in Africa, the business is going to change multiple times and the, the people that are able to pivot constantly are really kind of critical. Um, that having been said, I think there are interesting macro trends, like the ones that we were talking about earlier. So one, one company that we invested in a few months ago called Cutstruck is a Nigerian, um, construction marketplace, um, So it's basically organizing all of the needs that a general contractor might have for a specific build. Um, This is an industry that's kind of dominated by one or two players and then thousands of smaller players. Um, And that's largely because the one or two players kind of manage the information landscape um, because it's non-transparent. So like the price of cement or the price of rebar or what have you. And the trend that they're really focused on is this kind of macro Africa needs 100 billion per year to to fill the infra gap. Um, And what what got us really interested in this company was a a study by a Yale prof that looked at um, urbanization trends in Africa and estimated that per every 2.6 people that move into cities, of which there will be Um, several hundred million over the next decade. So this is a near term trend for every 2.6 people, a single building is built. Um, And so you can imagine the kind of macro tailwinds for an industry where you've got 500 million people moving into urban areas in, call it 30 cities over the next 10 years and 200 million people, buildings being built. Usually this is a play for like Chinese or Turkish construction firms, um, but they've kind of been pulling back. Obviously Turkey had that disaster, um, but China's BRI and, and and also they've kind of been pulling back from large construction and they're really focused on large construction. A lot of these buildings would be kind of smaller uh, household dwellings and small business dwellings. And so there's an opportunity there for kind of SME um, uh, contractors uh, that we really liked. Um, another company that we really liked, uh, and I, I guess this also kind of reveals a little bit more about our thesis is that we, we do think that frontier markets are where you can get the greatest return for uh, your dollar. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be from those countries. Um, so Atmo uh, is a weather prediction service um, started by, um, uh, a, I think, a Canadian um, and a French guy um, that are now based in Berkeley. And their basic thesis is that we have done weather prediction the same way for the last 60 years. It's called the classical method. Um, and that's really not offered us a lot. I mean, I. I can't think of a profession where you can go on TV and say there's a 50% chance of something happening and people coming back and being like, great, that was super informative. Yeah. Um, So, you know, obviously weather and weather disasters play a major part in, in frontier markets, lack of infrastructure, lack of planning, but you know, five of Africa's top 30 deadliest weather disasters has happened in the last 18 months. And so this is a trend that is continuing. And so what these guys have done is they've built um, essentially a platform that integrates local data and historical data from the markets um, into their prediction system. And that's able to give you longer term, what what they call medium range weather prediction forecasts. Um, And that allows governments, it allows militaries, it allows companies to plan better um, with more time. most of the way countries get their weather data is from, you know, they've got local kind of base stations where they're getting some information, but they're also just licensing it from NOAA, from the US. And sometimes that can be an exorbitant cost. Um, So they're really bringing the cost curve down for understanding weather systems. Um, They're looking at some work in East Africa now. Uh, They've got some US contracts uh, as well. So that's, I think a super interesting and exciting company that uh, we just invested in a couple months ago.
0: Fantastic. A few follow-ups on that. So one is I previously worked at this think tank uh, called the Charter City Institute that's very much dedicated towards this trend of urbanization that you cite and the potential unlocking of A, new consumer bundles, but B, new forms of productivity as people agglomerate away from uh, you know fairly sparsely Um, located villages, and you move to these urban centers where, say, you have an industrial zone, manufacturing zone, mining, et cetera. Um, Mapping those opportunities is an incredibly interesting thing there. One thing that I wanted to ask about later on, but I think now is a good time to ask instead, is uh, you mentioned the Turkish contractors and you mentioned Belt and Road. It strikes me that uh, the U.S. equivalent for kind of participating in these markets Is not as pronounced despite the size of USAID or despite the IMF etc. What are your thoughts on uh, how the US and how the western nations say the G7 can kind of more effectively participate within these markets? There is this quote that comes to mind which is uh, every single time the British go to Africa they give the people a lecture every single time China goes to Africa they build a hospital and it strikes you that you know building goodwill through enhancing productivity and through kind of having these skills transfer programs matters a lot, but I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on that landscape?
1: Yeah. Um, There's a Chinese entrepreneur um, named Helen High um, that talks about how Americans are um, very cautious when they explore uh, new regions. And it's totally inconsistent with kind of the American psyche um, and I think she's totally right. I mean, the, the country was founded on this sort of frontier mentality. And I think at least as it concerns um, business and frontier, we've been um, unusually cautious. Um, I, I think one of the things that the U.S. really has as a competitive advantage against countries like China, um, because I don't think the U.S. can really compete on a kind of just you know allocated dollars or... Um, you know, they're not—they're not, they're not going to start building bridges and stadiums and palaces and stuff like that. But—but but where it really does have a competitive advantage is in its capital markets. That's usually how the U.S. expresses its its power: is the ability to invest, to leverage its pension funds, its institutional investors. And I think the challenge is in a lot of the markets that we're investing in; those capital markets are are super thin, they are over capitalized on in some level, as in they don't necessarily, the, the, the companies that are listed don't necessarily need to be listed. They're sort of forced to list. And if you're a growing company that's 10 to 20, 30 million revenue, you're gonna list in in, in New York or London. Um, and so I think as the US starts to reconsider its role it, it, from a kind of, in, international expansion and and basis, they should really focus on how can we build capital markets so that we can influence corporate expansion through our pension investors, our institutional investors. Because really, we have spent a ton of time trying to convince Americans that investing in places like Africa or Egypt or whatever, Pakistan, Indonesia, is not risky. And it's just not true. I mean, it is risky uh, and people should be aware of those risks. What we have done li- little time doing is giving people that have already kind of come to terms with that risk, a vehicle to take risk. Um, and, and, and we just don't have that. And that's what capital markets provide. Um, yeah.
0: W- do you have any thoughts on what the potential shape of such a vehicle may be? I know there's been a lot of talk on stuff like blended finance. I know there's a lot of potential in terms of, you know, lower cost securitization through tokenization, etc. These are ideas that are floated in white papers by the IMF yeah. and yeah. their kind of ilk. And it strikes me that the, the the manifestation of that in the marketplace, though, is not as pronounced as one would hope for it to be. What, what are your thoughts on how one may navigate that idea, Maze, if that was a...
1: It starts with building the the capital markets um, in the countries in which the the U.S. wants to invest. Um, And that's really a conversation with whatever version of the SEC exists in the countries and saying, look, um, here's what we think would uh, transform local or, or international investment into your local companies. I think another thing that was floated several years ago was um the ability to invest subnationally so we have municipal bonds in in the US we can invest in a city we can invest in a project etc um those get rated um people uh you know sell side buy side folks can discuss what makes sense and where they are where they want to allocate risk there's no such thing um in most markets across Africa partially because the ratings agencies don't see enough flow going into those places, uh, and so if it's not rated, people aren't going to invest. What you see is just national bonds, and um, and those kind of ebb and flow, and and whatnot. But if it, if you could make vehicles that give you specific exposure to specific trends, um, I think that would open up a lot of more a lot more risk financing for folks in frontier markets.
0: Incredible. Uh, you're totally right. There isn't any kind of specific vehicle apart from maybe investing in a publicly listed REIT or something um, that can allow you to say, "Oh, I want exposure to Lagos State," or "I, right. I want exposure to kind of Abuja's exactly. administrative apparatus." Uh, one of the striking things in terms of internal capital market developments is in China uh, because they had so many different types of special economic zones; they all had varying effectiveness, growth rates, etc. Um, many of them were structured on these triple P contracts where the private developers were given essentially the capacity to tax within that region. And the more lax those were, the more growth they were able to kind of incubate because they had ownership over the future growth as well. Um, one can imagine what if that, what if there's a way for public investors to kind of get exposed to that or pension, yep. etc. Um, very interesting uh, stuff. In terms of... Uh, the companies that you described before um what does the kind of growth dynamics look like for these frontier market companies in contrast to that developed market peers because i feel like you have good exposure to both sides so what, what do the economics look like what do the constraints look like
1: yeah i think the thing that you have to understand first is you're just dealing with a very different um operating environment so um most consumers are offline right now um on the continent um the sort of bottom billion yeah they have smartphones and yeah they might have uh data coming to those smartphones but if you're building a business that is exclusively online um because that's how you built it everywhere else you're going to fail and i think the the core challenge for a lot of companies is to say how do we how do we kind of start offline, but over time, shepherd people online, Um, and and getting that mix of like offline, offline business model is not intuitive, it's not easy, especially for a high growth tech company that's looking to expand. Um, So there's a ton of product iterations, there's a lot of like, unique cohort management, there's assessments of consumer behavior, there's a ton of pivoting. So I think the front end of these expansion efforts often look pretty slow, um, but once you've got the model locked in, you've got kind of the agent network, you've got the regulators where you want them. Um, it can it can look like hockey stick, um, but you really have to get through those first few years of volatility and doubt and so forth, um, because you're you're kind of both teaching the market learning the market yourself and growing the market. Usually, you know, you want to just be doing and then finally you're selling into the market. You really just want to be doing one of those things, selling into the market. When you have to do four of them, um that's kind of sand in the gears. Um so uh, again, it's it's it takes a, it takes longer than you would expect, I guess.
0: Interesting. Um zooming out a bit, what do you think are some underrated themes or even problems that haven't really been solved within some of the sub-markets that you've been looking at that, again, just people aren't paying as much attention to as, say, certain types of fintech-based theses that are more popular?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess from my time at Anderil, um, just realizing the cost curve of functional defense and security, that that's going down very quickly. Um, and I think to the favor of militaries that have limited budgets. So you've seen a ton of um emerging market um uh multinationals looking at Ukraine and looking at before that Nagorno-Karabakh wars and saying, well drones are fairly easy. You can build a drone for, you know, five, six hundred dollars that could be effective. So I think defense tech and security tech um is an interesting theme it's hard in these markets because it's such a government conversation uh, and it's so kind of mysterious and um, cloak and dagger. But I do think that there is some truly transformational companies that are that are coming out of uh, Turkey, um, India, uh, certainly Israel, obviously, in, in defense tech. And um, so it's a theme that I don't think a lot of people think about and, and one that I um, particularly interested and excited about ditto space uh in these places with um the cost of sending something to space um going down exponentially i think there's a lot of interesting opportunity to revisit how services some services are provided um on the continent
0: and in frontier markets fantastic one anecdote that i will share with you which is related to those two themes right at the intersection is a friend of mine is building a company that. And I may have shared this with you before, it it, it essentially has um, these balloons that go into space, right, and that have applied machine learning to the visual model of what's going on as it looks down below. And as a result, you just have incredibly high fidelity um, capacity to track what's coming in and out of an area. And if you're looking at certain areas in, say, for example, Nigeria, massive landmass, certain pockets of these various states have, you know, certain problems when it comes to terrorism, et cetera, the ability to have this one macro map of the ins and outs of certain areas from a security perspective is transformative. And so they actually sell, in this case, to middle market, um, sorry, middle-sized market, middle governments in, in Europe, but they were also kind of going to contract with a few countries in Africa. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an example of, as you mentioned, that lowering cost curve of defense. Yeah. As a more macro observation, I would say, uh, I, th- I think of kind of you know, Kagame and Rwanda, where there's this acknowledgement after such a brutally chaotic, non-leviathan-esque kind of genocide that took place there. They realized, okay, security is like number one to having a foundation to build up a civilization, a society, and an economy. Without that, you are nothing. And if the cost is too high you just have chaos. You don't have the capacity to do things. Mozambique's a good example where they had struggles with liquefied natural gas and the kind of rebels that kind of came up. And so uh, this is a very exciting theme. I think a morally very important one as well, uh, despite some other people may seeing it um, differently. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So the follow-up there is, what do you think an overrated theme is within these markets? Um, well,
1: I think any, any kind of copy and paste model from the from Silicon Valley into these markets. Um, you just It's just hard to do. Um, I think uh, last mile is super hard. Unit economics on last mile are um, difficult. Managing staff that size is difficult. Obviously, like a lot of the part of the crypto craze I think has kind of fallen by the wayside. I think there's still promise in things like stable coins and you'll certainly hear that in in venture communities across frontier markets but like you know NFTs and stuff like that I don't think they they hold a ton of immediate promise maybe in the future and then any business that that that's fully online um and kind of uh doesn't recognize the fact that that offline is kind of how you get folks online
0: very interesting um you mentioned silicon valley What are your thoughts on strengthening the relationship between uh, Silicon Valley? So, so for example, you mentioned before strengthening the relationship metaphorically with New York in some sense and uh, frontier markets because you're thinking about the financing, right? Then there's the development and maybe structural adjustment side, which comes from DC, more policy side. Then there's the, you know, vanguard of technology, which is Silicon Valley um, and its interactions with frontier markets. What are your thoughts on that interplay of these different cultures perhaps mm. trying to interact with these markets. And two, what does it mean to strengthen that in the longer term?
1: Yeah, I mean, I the, the reality is like they each have very different, but very specific interests. So New York obviously has an interest in expanding capital markets and um, looking at, uh, trying to find out al- essentially alpha and arbitrage across capital markets. The Valley has a specific interest in user growth uh, you know, and, and a continent like that, Africa offers some interesting, attractive user growth potential, as does LATAM. Um, and then in D.C., it's it's much more, um, uh, for frontier markets, it's a little bit, le- it's more diluted, the interest. Um, I think we're entering a kind of era of great power politics and frontier markets may not be getting the kind of attention that somebody who invests in them might want to see. I also tend to think that some of the institutions in DC, like the world bank or IMF are frequently fighting the last battle. So they're, they're approaching the opportunities with tools that might've been relevant 20 years ago. Um, And yeah, this happens with the military. Um, I think it happens with, with those institutions. Um, I think, but, but I think that they think that they're being innovative, um, you know, and when, when you're sitting in, in downtown DC and looking at regression models and data that might've been provided six years ago, you're, you're like by definition, not connected to what's happening. Um, so we'll, we'll see what the new, uh, president and world bank Ajay Banga has to do about that. But, um. Those sort of ways of being are pretty persistent.
0: Interesting. How do you approach fund construction and setting up nodes for deal flow across these frontier markets?
1: Yeah, so we have a very specific fund, like portfolio approach here. So we're we're kind of early in, early out, and then very late in, and then late out, and sort of a, a barbells approach. Um so what do we mean by that? We really think the opportunity is can we source the deal? Can we source the opportunity? Can we get a good valuation and can we get the right people around the table to get us out not at series C or series D but at series A. So one example of that is we just made the first investment in a Somaliland company a, a health ERP. Um that's a a huge company, uh, comparatively speaking with a, um, very limited valuation. Um, they were being courted by the largest multinationals in Somalia, the and, and the other telco. And maybe we exit to them, um, in the next year or two here. Um, so that's kind of one example on that side. And then, you know, on the, on the late in late out, what we're really talking about there is, how do we get into companies like a Flutterwave or a Chipper or a Andela that are Series D plus have plans to IPO and we get kind of a bump on the IPO? Um, we bring a, a slightly differentiated kind of capital. So we're, we're obviously not going to get in because we have a quantum of capital that exceeds others. But we do know regulators we do understand the political dynamics of large companies in these markets. Um, and so we could be valuable. So that's that's the thesis. We'll see if it, it plays out.
0: Could you share more on the um, value-add component of the fund? I know you guys previously ran an expert network type thing. I think, yeah. yeah. So in
1: 2014, we started an expert network called the Africa Expert Network. That failed. Um, uh, but we pivoted into a PR company um, called Insider PR. Um, and really, it was through the PR company that we got the idea to start investing. We saw these phenomenal entrepreneurs that just weren't getting noticed. Uh, and we kind of realized that that is that is itself value. And when you're at a PR company, and when you're working for these customers, you get a very good sense of how they operate and how they handle stress and challenges. And so it gave us this sort of like, free diligence, like subsidized diligence path platform. Uh, and we still get deals out of insider PR. So that has 10 people. Um, we had expanded it into Latin America and, and Middle East. We've since pulled back from those markets um, and focused exclusively on Africa. But um, the value add there is we understand media, we understand PR, um, and we also understand kind of how regulators think about media and PR um
0: so that's the the value add fantastic um could you share more on the somali erp company in terms of one just the, what what is the backstory behind how that's founded what does that where does that fit within the kind of healthcare system of the country uh, yeah well?
1: yeah for sure i mean the founding story is fascinating so it's this somaliland kid uh, it's a founding team of three um so so just as kind of background, Somaliland, it's um, the top end of what was Somalia. Um, It's been functionally independent for um, the better part of uh, 40 years now. Um, uh, Democratic system, reasonably well um, governed, um, obviously has had this challenge of being attached to Somalia and so hasn't been able to get kind of Financing has been sort of bolted onto to uh, uh, all the challenges that Somalia has had. Um, uh, but there's also a fairly sizable diaspora. So it makes what would you would think is a low-income country kind of look more like a middle-income country because of the diaspora. In fact, one of the largest companies across Africa, and, and maybe the most interesting, successful company, a company called um, uh got its start um, uh, in the region, um, kind of providing, uh, remittance flows. And so he, uh, was on a kind of vacation back home. Um, I think I'm remembering this correctly, had a incident where he needed to go into the clinic. The clinic had, um, records going back, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, the, Uh, so that the ERP system was all written in books. And so what he essentially did was to say, look, let me take a picture of each of those um, input logs and I'll just digitize it and give it to you on your phone so that you don't have to like flip pages to find out when my last visit was to this clinic um, or to see kind of what the condition of my parents was uh, and to assess, you know, my current condition based on that. Um, So, it was kind of that idea of how do you set up a back end ERP system? So they're now operating in 30 different clinics and hospitals. Um, they also do medical tourism. So they facilitate surgery uh, to India. They've got um, kind of a, a a service that provides kind of end to end for that. If you've got a, um, a deeper challenge or a surgery need. Um, so it's a very interesting platform that, um, you know, you would never really hear about, um, because that entrepreneur was just going about his business, um, digitizing and transforming the healthcare system in
0: Somaliland. Brilliant. Um, all right, cool. Final, uh, two questions. One is, uh, what other strategies do you think may work for funds that you mentioned, for example, the barbell strategy that you guys approach, what are some other strategies that may kind of work with a fund that has a different type of scale or a different type of mandate that... Maybe it doesn't exist right now in the market, but you think someone else of the right type should approach.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll maybe start by saying what I think is the most challenging um, fund structure, which is these kind of series A, series B growth funds right now. Um, part of the reason why, and I didn't kind of mention this when I was talking about our barbell strategy, is we, we do that partially because it gets us better valuations, but also because it avoids this currency challenge. So when you're very young uh, startup, you're not being valued on P&L or EBITDA or whatever. You're just being valued on traction. Likewise, when you're a, a much bigger company, you've kind of figured out your unit economics. So you also don't need to necessarily worry as much about currency. When you're in the middle, you're really trying to figure that out. And, You're trying to tell a narrative if you're the company that you're going to figure out your unit economics or your unit economics are great or don't worry about currency because we've got this hedge or that hedge or what have you. But it's not a clear story. So I think the biggest challenge with investors is understanding the currency risk and how to get around the currency risk. Most of the successful businesses uh, over the last 150 years on the continent have been um, either kind of USD-backed or commodity-backed plays. And so currency risk has rarely been an issue. Um, but this new breed of company that is doing kind of consumer plays are going to need to figure out how do we, how do we deal with that problem? You see it with Jumia now. Um, you know, Jumia, in some ways, has been a great company and in other ways has been... Uh, a disaster from a public perspective, um, and I think a lot of that comes down to to managing unit economics and making sure you're not paying more um, uh, per dollar to, to to get the new consumer in. Um, so fund strategies, I think there's look, it's an, an dramatically underinvested. Um, frontier markets are by definition dramatically underinvested, so I think just being a fund period is a good thing even if you're in that middle space uh, I I think we've got the best strategy I think as capital markets get developed more there's probably a role for a kind of um, uh, public play uh, in some of these places uh, and then obviously like you know uh, and I think this is a very interesting model is the uh, is the vultures um, folks that are kind of identifying the companies that are just like Ponzi schemes or lies? This was a case in. There's a company called Tingo a couple months ago that um, was essentially revealed to be a total lie um, by Hindenburg. Um, so, like short selling um, uh, companies that you know just don't make sense. It's also kind of an, an interesting opportunity, I think, that a lot of people don't really look at that well.
0: Awesome. Uh, final question is, any recommended resources or just a calls to action for our listeners?
1: Uh, recommended resources. Um, <laughs> I Look, I do a lot of quote unquote research on uh, Twitter, on you know, WhatsApp groups that I'm a part of and Telegram groups. Um, so, you know, I, to the extent that's possible for viewers getting kind of monitoring those more and getting involved in them and being active in in those sorts of forums, I think the better. Um, beyond that, it's kind of a lifestyle thing. You just kind of have to be in it.
0: All right, fantastic. I've actually just realized there's one final question here, um, which is, I know you've been doing some work thinking about the application of AI and LLMs to markets. We'd love if you could share some of the insights from that.
1: Yeah, look, we, we think that um, there is a low-key, very interesting opportunity with LLMs on the continent, um, largely because, um, and this is not kind of a unique thesis, but we don't think it will be a a replacement. So I think the the canonical thinking is, oh, you know, low cost labor will be pushed out because AI will replace them. That might happen 20, 30 years down the road, but for the next 10 years, at least for the the fund life that I'm running, uh, I think what you'll see is sort of extreme augmentation um, of human capabilities and capacity. And where this is relevant for Africa and, and other frontier markets is, specifically in junior coders. So Andela is one of the largest startups on the continent. They train coders, but they usually get them to kind of junior mid-level. And anybody that's worked at a a software startup knows that the sort of allure of the 10X coder or the the senior developer really adds tremendous value to business operations and potential. And so where I see this playing a role is Africa's got 700,000 junior coders, if they can develop kind of tools to make these junior coders mid or senior level developers. um, And that's already happening. I mean, you got the GitHub Copilot. you've just got chat GPT that can, can do it itself. You've got other things. There's a startup called Talstack. That's very interesting. That's trying to build this. Um, Then you've got a kind of like, almost a leapfrog effect in the developer community, which I think is very exciting. So I think that's where LLMs hit first. Who knows where they go kind of after that? Um, And and to be honest, I'm not too, too worried about the idea that frontier markets is going to be passed over by LLMs. You see kind of less expensive, smaller models um, being developed every day. Uh, So I'm not super worried about the GPU effect and and, and the cost of running LLMs either.
0: Got it. All right. Awesome. Elliot, thank you so much for making the time for this interview. It's been fantastic.
1: Likewise, Chris. Great to meet you and and, uh, look forward to hearing it.